0: we read Genesis 38 it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua he took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Er she conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah Judah was in Kizub when she bore him and Judah took a wife for heir, his uh, firstborn, and, his, and her name was Tamar. But heir Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother." And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers, so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah uh, to his sheep shears. He and his friend, Hira the Adullamite, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enam, um, which, is, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law she said what will you give me that you may come into me he answered i will send you a young goat from the flock and she said if you give me a pledge until you send it he said what pledge shall i give you she replied your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand so he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him then she arose and went away and taking off her veil she put on the garments of her widowhood When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she went. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was Pyrrhus. Afterward the brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. Join me as we pray. God, we're so thankful for your presence. Um, You remind us that when we gather in your name that you're here with us. God, I pray that our worship this morning was pleasing to you. God, we pray that as your word is brought this morning, God, that it would pierce the dark areas of our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd give us the strength to um, turn towards you. God, we thank you for uh, the many blessings that you've bestowed upon this body. God, help us to bring you glory in all that we do. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.
1: Buenos dias, familia. Now, I have to be honest with you uh, this morning. When I was in seminary uh, and studying through scripture and learning all the beautiful things about the word of God and theology, um, there wasn't ever one time that I thought, I cannot wait to preach Genesis 38. (laughs) Never. And in God's sovereignty and Lance's planning, um, (laughs) here we are this morning. Um, And so I say that to you this morning because I know this text is a difficult one to read. As you heard, many different words and topics and themes that uh, we look at in Genesis and we begin to realize the depravity and the level of sin that existed in that time. Um, It's difficult for us to hear about, and yet the Bible doesn't skip over those things. In fact, it addresses those things. And because the Bible does that, then we are to do the same. And so I've labored very intently this week, very difficultly this week, to make sure that I am faithful to the text, to preach about the things that God has in His Word, and also to be uh, cautious in the language I use, knowing that we have uh, ears in here that are a little bit younger than normal. But why is this important? We see the reality is that uh, the people of the ancient Near East and the people in Genesis are no different than our society today. When we think about sexual immorality when we think about scandal, when we think about deception, when we think about all the drama that is happening here, we might think, man, that is so crazy. That was the time in which the people of God lived in Genesis. And yet, when you turn on your Netflix, and you turn on your Hulu, and you turn on your Amazon, and anything else that you use to stream um, on your TV, it doesn't take long for you to scroll through the different types of genres that exist and you find all these things right on your screen. This is our time. We are mesmerized as a culture and as a society by these things. Why? I, I think two reasons. One, it's because we can look at these things and say, man, at least I'm not that bad. We look at these documentaries of serial killers and we're like, man, that's crazy. These people are insane. I can't, at least I'm, and there's this righteousness inside of us that says, I'm not that bad. Or the flip side of this, we're mesmerized because we actually know that this is at some capacity in all of us. At some capacity, all these things that we will talk about today, they are a part of us. And, and this is what we call a messy life. This is what we call just journeying through our day to day. And the scripture is so beautiful in this difficult text because it provides hope for us. And so we don't skip over difficult texts because ultimately they provide beautiful hope for you and for me. And so I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know how your week's been, how your weekend's been, or what messiness you may be facing right now. Maybe externally, maybe relationally, maybe internally. There are all these messiness, messy parts in our lives. And today's text very beautifully will bring about a hope that if a man like Judah can be redeemed. That if a man like Judah can be restored, there is hope for you and there is hope for me. And that's the two beautiful culminations of this text is that God will redeem a man like Judah and therefore he can redeem your life and your mess and he can redeem my life and my mess. And the final thing that we find in the culmination of this text is that the breakthrough that comes through God's redemptive work ultimately leads to Jesus. The breakthrough that comes through God's redemptive work ultimately leads to Jesus. And that is beautiful news for us today. So let's start in today's text. I want to take you to the end to give us a lens of. What we're going to understand, God is showing us in this text, and so I just want us to go to verse 27 through 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her room, speaking of Tamar, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Paris. After this, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. See, this word for breach here, it's the same word for breakthrough. And there's a play on words here that we're seeing that God is using all this messiness in life. He is, he is breaking through our messy. He is breaking through the messy of Judah. He is breaking through the messy of Tamar to ultimately lead us to the greatest hope and the greatest redeemer, Jesus Christ himself. And so with that lens, we will now navigate Genesis 38. We will look at the life of Judah and use him as a mirror for our own lives. We'll use his life and his example as mirrors for the things that we find in our lives. So let's begin. Verse 1, it says that, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her, and he was with her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his first son Ur. First thing we see here is that God is breaking through our messy disobedience. God is breaking through our messy disobedience. You see, the text is very intentional here. It says that, that Judah went down from his brothers, and he did what? He turned aside. The language that the author is using is very intentional to show us that, that Judah, this man that comes from the lineage of, of Abraham, the, man, the family that God has called to carry on the birthright, to bring about the Messiah, he is turning aside. And what is he doing? He is now hanging out with Hira, a pagan, a, a Canaanite, uh, someone who is actually actively against the will of God, and he is turning aside. And what does he do? We hear echoes of Genesis 3. He sees and he takes. We hear these echoes of the garden that he sees and he takes, and we find our first mirror opportunity, and it is this, that what is appealing to our eyes can be dangerous to our souls. What is appealing to our eyes can be dangerous to our souls. You see, Judah began his journey by looking and by seeing, and even though there had been instructions for the people of God to not marry Canaanite women, why? Because they actively stood in rebellion against God. This was a pagan society, a pagan uh, society that had a religion that was actively rebelling against God, and God said, don't take wives from the Canaanite women. Judah is turning aside, hanging out with Hiram. and now he sees and he takes for himself. And this is a story that we've been hearing on repeat in Genesis, story that we've been told over and over again be careful what we intake through social media through our advertisement I I clean out my inbox weekly in my in my email and I continually get bombarded with the latest fashion with the latest foods I need to be eating with the latest health tips Um, I'm sure all of us have the same kind of 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 advertisement getting sent to us but ultimately what what we find is that there is things that are feeding us that are trying to feed our soul this is what you need and what abraham or sorry what judah does is he partakes of what he sees of what's most appealing to his eyes and he forgets that god has a greater purpose for his family you see when the the fall came when adam and eve fell from god's grace and sin entered chaos erupted across the earth and god gave abraham a promise That through him, the nations would be blessed. That through him, we would see the Messiah come. And there is this one family that God has chosen to bring about the Redeemer. There is only one problem. This family is dysfunctional. One problem. This family is incredibly dysfunctional. And maybe you can relate. Don't say amen. But maybe you can relate that there is this dysfunctional family, and yet God is going to use the dysfunction and the messiness to bring about his redemptive work. God is going to reveal himself and his power and his might and his great work through this mess and through this dysfunction. And here we have Judah actively rebelling against what God has instructed his family not to do. And he is going, marries a Canaanite, and he has three sons. Now, why is this important? Because the birthright is about to be passed on through Judah. He's the fourth son of Jacob. And a few weeks ago, we heard about Reuben uh, defiling the bed of his father by sleeping with his father's wife. And so uh, Reuben is disqualified as receiving the birthright. A few weeks ago, we heard about the defilement of Dinah and her two brothers, Simeon and Levi, being enraged by this and going out to Shechem and killing all the men that are in that town. And Jacob says to them, hey, you've brought shame upon our people, and now they're disqualified from carrying on the birthright and so who do we have next in line judah can this be the man that will take on the birthright that will take on the double blessing that will be the lineage of jesus could this be the man that a week ago we found being the one that is conniving with his brothers when they say hey let's kill our brother joseph and he says hey there's no profit in that let's let's think about this profitably Let's sell him, let's take those earnings, and then let's continue our journey. And then they take a goat and take the blood from the goat that they kill and put it on Joseph's cloak and take it back to his father. Now, all that will take uh, some importance in this text, but this is the the man that God has chosen to lead uh, the lineage of Jesus, the man who is deceptive, the man who is greedy, the man who is actively disobeying. Man, there's hope for you. And there's hope for me. Why? Because even amidst this disobedience, God is breaking through this messiness, our messiness. And so we continue in the text, in verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, the text does not actually tell us she was a Canaanite, but it's almost inferred in this. Text Because he's taken a Canaanite wife for himself, Judah has. Now he takes on a wife, gives it to uh, Ur in order that his lineage may live on, in order that his blessing could continue on through Ur. But the Bible says that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord did what? Ur! Put him to death. (laughs) Put him to death. I gotta thank my wife for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because he was wicked before the eyes of the Lord. Ur was not going to be the man that God would use to carry on the lineage of Jesus. Why? Because he was wicked. He was an active rebellion. And then we see that uh, Judas is is planning, how can I continue this this lineage of mine? And he says, you know what? Because of our customs and because of our cultures, now Onan, my second, must take um, Tamar, the wife of my first, so that my lineage can live on. And what do we find Onan does in verse 9? He says, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his own. I'll stop there. He knew that the offspring would not be his own heir. And it's amazing as I look at these texts because the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You see, he's planning, he's plotting his head. And he knows that, that if he has a son with Tamar, that son would receive the double blessing from his father Judah, and he himself wants that blessing. He himself wants to have that double portion. And so we see him do the same thing he, his dad does. He begins to plot. He begins to deceive. This greed takes over him, and now what does he do? He takes his male provision and wastes it on the side. And what does the Bible said say about that? That that was wicked before the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because this was an active rebellion against what God wanted to do. And what does the Lord do with him? He takes them both out. This is a difficult text to, to process because the, the God that we know, the God of grace, the God of goodness, the God of mercy, the God of justice, uh, he actually, the Bible tells us he, he kills Ur and he kills Onan. Is this the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament? We've, we've seen this before in Genesis and we find this, that this is actually the God of all the Bible, of all eternity. And so I, I just want you to turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And we find instructions for what we did today, the Lord's Supper. Now, you want to know how seriously God takes his redemptive plan? Go with me to verse 27. As we remember the sacrifice of Christ, this is the instructions we get. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. And this is the verse that I want you to pay attention to. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is the New Testament. This is not Genesis anymore. This is the New Testament. Paul's telling them, the church in Corinth, hey, because you guys have not examined yourselves, you've not taken the time to, to look inward at, at the wickedness and evil that exists inside of you. Some of you are ill because you're partaking of this very uh, important uh, communion that God has given us, and some of you have actually died because of that. And why is this important for us? Let's continue the last in those next two verses. 31. But if we judge ourselves truly, and the word for judge there is discerned, if we truly discerned ourselves truly, We would not be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, God had a plan. He had a redemptive plan for the family of Judah. He has a redemptive plan for you and me, and what he is asking us is to actually to discern what his will is, that we may follow it. But if we stand in active rebellion, God will not have that. He will not have the evil and the wickedness that that will contribute to a world that, uh, that ultimately erupts in the chaos that he is trying to restore. And so we may read this text and say, well, should I be scared that God is going to kill me? Should I be scared that I may fall dead? I just partook of communion and yet there is some messiness in me. There is some messiness in my relationships around here. What is God asking me to do here? What is God trying to show me here? And it is this, fam, that That ultimately, if we don't discern, that if we don't take time to reflect on what it is that's in our hearts, that ultimately we would be led to death. That the gift that we have of God in grace that we find in Corinthians is that as we discern, that we truly discern where we are, who we are, how we are, that the gift that we receive from from God is this discipline, a word that we don't like. That's a word that's that's a bad word. We don't like discipline, and yet Corinthians would tell us that the gift when we truly discern is that we would be disciplined by God, that He would actually bring us into His right redemptive plan, because left to ourselves, we always wander. Left to ourselves, we go to the worst places of depravity. And if Genesis is not a testament to that, read the rest of the Bible, read the New Testament, or look around the world that we're in today. Left to ourselves, we never choose God. Oh, but in his great grace, he has made a redemptive plan. And what does he do? He is breaking through our plans for his redemptive plan. So we find here Judah planning with Tamar to carry out his lineage through Ur, who's dead now, through Onan, who's dead now. And what do we find in Judah? Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house to Shelah, my son grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. What we see in Judah, the Bible tells us, is fear. Now, isn't it amazing that the plans that you and I have many times, if we're being honest, these plans are for self-protection are for self-justification. And, and those are actually birthed out of something even deeper. And what is that? Fear. We're fearful of something, that something will happen to us, that something will happen to our kids, that something will happen in our lives. And so we have all these plans that we devise. And now we see Judah doing the same thing. He's trying to protect her. He's trying to protect Onan. They die. And now he's trying to protect Sheila, his last son. And he's thinking, man, that's the black widow, Tamar. Something's going to happen to my son if he ends up marrying her. So you know what? Instead of being responsible and saying, hey, come into the house. You're a double widow now. You're double widow. And we've been hearing about the quartet of the oppressed, right? That that God values us loving and serving and protecting the widow, the orphan, the poor and the immigrants. And he this is something he would have known from his family lineage. Instead of saying that, what does he say? He excuses himself of responsibility and says, Hey, go back to your to your dad's house. And whenever it's time, whenever I think it's convenient, whenever I I, I, I think it's 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 gonna be good, I'll I'll marry you to Sheila to continue on my lineage. And now, later on in the text, we find out this was never his intent. He was being deceptive. He was planning and plotting how to protect, how to continue his lineage, and he was scared that Tamar was bad luck for his family. And so he plots in a way that uh, rids himself of responsibility, personal responsibility, social and moral responsibility, but more than that, he rids himself of his godly responsibility to care for the widow. And God has to break through this messy plan. So listen to Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Whatever plans you have in life right now, good. Keep planning. Keep working to your goals. Keep figuring out what the next steps are. We're doing this as we're church planning. We're figuring out, Lord, what are the next steps we need to take. But ultimately, what will stand as we continue to turn to the Lord, as we continue to turn to his redemptive plan, is his will and his will alone. And that is what we find in this story. And so the Lord is breaking through our disobedience, He is breaking through our messy plans. And then we continue into the the meat of this text. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Herod the Adulamite. There's his friend again, the pagan. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. We'll stop there. The next thing that we see God doing in, in this story is that he is breaking through our messy normalcy. He's breaking through our messy normalcy. When you look at the life of Judah, you don't see a man of God yet. You don't yet see a man that is actively pursuing the will of the Lord, that is actively trying to live out the will of God. We see a man that is actively engaged in Canaanite traditions, customs, and cultures. We see a man who has immersed himself with his friend, uh, Hira, and he's living this life that now that he's mourned the the death of his wife after he's been told not to marry Canaanite women, he's adopted their customs and traditions, and his behavior uh, precedes him. We see, Tamar knew that he would be heading out to, to this festival, not just to work, but to actually celebrate, to go and hang out with the boys and have a few drinks. And a part of their custom of this religion in the, in the Canaanite community was that they would worship through uh, the prostitutes that were at the temple. That was a way of them worshiping and bringing converts into their religion. And we see Judah He's no different than the Canaanites. He's headed in that direction. And, and Tamar knew him so well, knew his behavior so well that she said, you know what, I'll dress myself up as one of those prostitutes. And I'll wait for him at the road. And I'll see what he does. Because ultimately what she is trying to seek is justice. She's trying to seek justice. How do we know this? This text, text almost doesn't lend itself to really show us why she is seeking justice. But let me show you why I know that this is true. She Tamar is a widow. She was in a society where with no husband and no son, she would be cast out, she would be left aside, she had no hope. And so she takes this great risk, this great leap of faith to ultimately try to protect herself but also carry on the lineage of Judah. And she, in, in a very manipulative and deceptive way, takes off her widow's garments and puts on this veil. And we begin to see this parallel with the previous chapter where garments are used as deceptive tools. And so she's put on this veil of deception, and she goes out to the road to wait for Judah. And we find Judah arrives, and he sees her, and he thinks exactly as she thought he would do, that she is a prostitute. But why do I say she is seeking justice? I'm going to fast forward quickly to verse 26. At the end of all this, Judah's response to Tamar when she's about to be killed, and she says, hey, I need you to recognize these items. He says these words, she is more righteous than I. She's more righteous than I. And the word for righteousness there is the word "tzedek," which is actually a word that is used in court. And so she is presenting these this evidence to him, and she's saying, "Hey, I need you to recognize these items." And he is saying, "She is more just. In fact, justice is on her side." You see, what she was fighting for was justice for her position as a widow. She was fighting for justice, and so she goes and takes this huge risk, and she asks, she ultimately entices Judah. And even though this is not the way the Lord would have it, um, naturally, God uses this for His plan. And so she says, "Justice." He says, "Justice is on her side." And how do we know this? Why, why am I reading too much into the text? This is something that I wrestled through this week to present to us. Like, can God really use our messy normalcy for His justice and His plans? Uh, the answer is yes. I'm going to take you to one more text: Hosea 4:14. Hosea 4:14. Is God speaking to the people of Israel the, through the prophet about their active rebellion, about them turning away from Him, and He says, He says this in Hosea 4:14. And listen to this story: I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cold prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. See what we find is that God is actually saying, "Hey, this is this is not the way." But there's something far greater here at stake, and that is justice—the justice that I would have for my people, the justice that I would have for the widow. And no, she is not more; she is not sinless. Judah does not say, "Man, she is." guilt-free and i am guilty you know he says she is more righteous than me why because he can acknowledge that she is fighting for justice and so as god is breaking through our messy normalcy ultimately what he what he brings about is justice for the widow for the orphan for the sojourner and for the poor and what we find and we and and we don't yet see in judah is that he is being passive Whereas Tamar is taking this active role to fight for justice, we see in Judah's messy normalcy, we see that he is simply being passive. He's forgotten about his vow, and he is simply going about his life. So we continue in this text. Verse 20, when Judah's... Uh, actually, let me, let me recap this just for a second. Tamar runs into Judah. She, he basically propositions her and says, Hey, so... We're going to worship or what? And she says, um, well, what are you going to offer me? She says, I'm going to offer you a goat. We're going to, I'm going to offer you a goat. Having some, some um, echoes of last week. I'm going to offer you this goat. And she says, okay, but, but I need you to leave me basically a deposit. And as a deposit, I need you to leave me your signet, your uh, cord, and your staff things that are very valuable to Judah, things that actually identify Judah. Now, if you don't know what a signet is, it was, it was a ring that, had, that was flat like this one. And it was used ultimately to dip in wax and to, and to sign for whatever things you needed to sign for. Now, this was um, uh, very powerful and wealthy people had these things. And Judah, in his messy normalcy, doesn't even think twice about handing these over. It's just as if though he hands over his wallet and says, here's my ID... Here's my American Express. Here's my visa. Like, just take it because I'm here to worship. And think about that. Judah, the father of Jesus' lineage, is handing over his identity. He's handing over the most important, valuable things to himself to have momentary pleasure, to have momentary pleasure in the life that he had developed for himself in Canaan. Now, if that doesn't speak to you and to me, I I don't know what does because we do the same fam. We look at Judah and we can almost judge him and say, Well, I'm not out there worshiping in ways that are ungodly. You know, I'm in here. I'm I'm in here raising my hands, I'm in here singing, I'm at home reading the word. But what are the things that we are willing to lay down our lives for? Like what are the things, what are the subtle things in our lives? in our messy normalcy, I'm talking about our day-to-day, things that have become mundane to us that aren't even things that we think are sinful anymore. What are those things in your life that you just kind of go back to over and over and over again? And you're at a point now where you're like, man, it's it's just basically part of my life. Like I can't get and move past this. Well, beautiful news for you and for me today, fam, is that God is breaking through our messy normalcy. He has something greater for you and it's not that you would have this normal life where things are kind of just brushed off as, well, it's just society. It's not that big of a deal. This is the way everybody around me lives. In fact, people around me live, live even worse than this. But God has a greater plan for you. He has a greater plan for me. And that is a plan for justice. That is a plan for mercy. That is a plan for redemption. And so he will not allow us to stay in our messy normalcy. And so what we find... Is verse 20 continues when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. Pause. What is Judah doing? He's taking a passive stance, right? He's made this, inner, uh, this, this exchange with Tamar, not knowing it's his daughter in law. And now we find him going to pay what he said he would pay. But instead of going himself, what does he do? He sends his friend. We see a man that his life is so normal in this messiness that he is passive. He's not taking an active role in, or owning up to what he has done. And instead, he's sending his friend, and we find that this is not the way of the Lord. In fact, when, when you have been, if you've been here any time, amount of time at the church, you know that if you come to us as leaders and say, hey, I'm having an issue with so-and-so, what's the first thing we're going to say to you? I say, Have you gone and talked to that person yet? Have you gone and addressed this messiness with them yet? Why? Because ultimately God's using this messiness to restore us to himself and to one another. And we don't get to simply kind of dismiss ourselves and say, well, bro, but you're the trained professional. Like you're the leader of the church. And so, like, you need to help me. No, that there's no excuse here. Judah's passivity is not okay. And so we find that Judah just dismisses. He's hanging out with his pagan friend and he's taking on these pagan ways. And 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 we see that he dismisses himself from his responsibility. Now, they don't find her, and they come back, and they tell Judah, hey, she wasn't around. His friend comes back and says, hey, she was not there. And what does Judah do? In his deceptive ways, in the apple falling not far from the tree, he says, well, you know what? Let's just not do anything about this because uh, this is going to be shameful for me. Verse 23, Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. He was worried about what the people around him would think about him, not about doing the right thing, not about owning his mistakes. He was worried that they would laugh at him. Why? Because this was normal for his life. But God had a greater purpose and plan for him. God had a greater purpose and plan for you and for me, and we find this in in these next three verses. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out. And Let her be burned and she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law by the man To whom these belong. I am pregnant and she said, please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff We'll stop there The final thing we find in this text Is that god is breaking through our messy heart see up to this point Judah's has not yet been redeemed Judah yet doesn't know God as his God. Judah is not living in the will of the Lord. Up to this point, we've seen a man who's been deceptive, who's been manipulative, who's been self-preserving, who's who's, uh, been uh, self-satisfying, who's done all the things ultimately for himself. He's not thinking about God or the Lord's plan for his life and and, and his family. He's thinking simply about himself. And what does he quickly do when he hears about Tamar, the widow that he was supposed to be taking care of? When he gets word that, hey, her, her belly's starting to show and she's pregnant by immorality, what does he say? He says, take her out and burn her. I just want you to think about that just for one minute. A man who is very passive, hands-off, irresponsible, is quick to pass judgment. And we see that you and I are no different. Right? Our sins look a lot worse on other people. Our sins look a lot worse on other people. It's easy to look across the table and say, How could she? How dare they? And we forget that we are just as consumed. We are just as passive. We are just as greedy. We are just as needy for God's gospel. Oh, but God's gift is so great because he doesn't leave Judah in his normalcy. He doesn't leave Judah in his messiness. He breaks through, and we see in verse 26, actually verse 25, The language here is very intentional. Tamar, as she is literally being dragged out, it says. She's been brought out. She's on the way to be burnt. She sends these items to him and says, what, identify these items. The language, the word here for identify is is not just to identify, it's to recognize. She's telling him, discern these items. Discern what these are. She is using the language that we find in 1 Corinthians that we would discern and we would truly know ourselves. And she's saying, hey, uh, Judah, before you burn me, discern yourself. Pay attention to who you really are. And in God's great grace, we find verse 26. Then Judah identified them. Judah recognized. Judah, in God's grace, discerned. Oh my goodness, I am a wretched man. Oh my goodness, she is more righteous than me. I had a responsibility to care and protect her. I had a responsibility to provide for her. I had an obligation to the Lord to do these things and... Instead of doing that, I have done the opposite, and I have passed judgment, I have rid myself of responsibility, and I was ready to burn her. Who, When, when the people of the Ancient East would have listened to this text, they would have thought, this is such a drastic punishment for her immorality. Being burned alive wasn't just being killed, it was being tortured and then being killed. This is so drastic. That was reserved for really heinous crimes. And yet Judah is quick to pass that judgment. Why? Because he almost feels justified in that moment to say, I knew it. I knew it. This immorality in her is so big. That's the reason my sons died. I knew it. You know what? We need to kill her. But in God's great grace, he takes off the blinders from Judah. In God's great grace, uh, he uses a woman like Tamar, a woman who was also unrighteous, who is also unclean, who has also also done things not in keeping with the Lord's ways. And he uses her to ultimately give him life and give him hope. And he is able to say she is more righteous than I. And why is this important? This almost seems like a non sequitur to last week. We're in the Joseph novella. If you don't know where a novella is, it's a short novel. This Joseph novella that spans 37, uh, chapters 37 through chapters 50. And this would almost seem out of place, right? Like, man, last week we see Joseph being sold. Next week we'll see him encounter Potiphar's wife. He's like a righteous man. He's, he's, he's a man that knows the Lord's way and acts, the, 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 acts as a believer. He runs away from sin. He shows grace and mercy in the future. Why, why would Judah be inserted into this text? Well, because it's important to know that later on down the road, you see, it was from this tribe that Jesus would come, from Judah's tribe that Jesus would come. And in this moment of spiritual awakening for Judah, we find that he is radically changed, that he is radically transformed by God's great grace. And how do we know this? When we fast forward a few chapters, we find Joseph uh, has his brothers before him, And he asked to keep Benjamin uh, before sending them back to his father as as a sign. And and Judah, the man that a chapter ago sold his own brother and said, hey, we don't need him, like let's profit off of him. This man Judah, who has now had the spiritual awakening, a few chapters from now says, hey, don't take Benjamin, take me instead. He places himself and offers himself as a substitute, as a sacrifice. And now we're beginning to see that these breakthroughs that God is doing through his redemptive work, ultimately are leading to Jesus. We see that in the future, Judah will be this representation that he's taking the, the place, he's taking the, the punishment, even though here he was, he's ready to punish Tamar for his own sins, we see a foreshadowing of the greater Judah. We see a foreshadowing of the greater Redeemer that he is not casting his sins on you and me, instead he's taking your sins onto himself. We're seeing the scarlet hand that comes out of the womb in Jesus on the cross laying out his life as a sacrifice so that you and I may be spiritually awakened. We are seeing a foreshadowing of the great redeemer that would be in this lineage of Judah that Matthew would come and, and recognize Tamar. Out of all the people, he would recognize Tamar and the twins as the forefathers of Jesus, not because they were righteous, but because in their messiness, in their distrust, in their disobedience, in all of these things, God used that as his redemptive plan to ultimately link us to Jesus. And so, for you and for me, it's important because of this. Whatever mess you're in, you're not too far from God. We've sung about this over and over today. Whatever mess you're facing right now internally, relationally, around you, whatever it is that you are in, you are not too far removed from God's redemptive work. If God can take a man like Judah and God can change his heart and God could use him to link uh, him to Jesus, God can use you and your messiness. And I'll tell you what, I am a testament of this. I grew up in church. I knew all the right answers, and yet my heart was distant from God. I was actively rebelling against God because I thought I knew better. I thought I could earn my own righteousness before the Lord. And over time, in God's great grace, he's breaking through to my heart and he's shown me this. That there's no righteousness in me. The only righteousness I have is in Christ. And so I'll end and conclude with 2 Corinthians 5.21. I just want you to hear this and make him up behind me. It says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. C.S. Lewis would put it this way. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is the great gift of the gospel. This is the great gift of grace. And this is the great gift that we find in difficult texts not that depravity will always win rampant and will always win no in fact it is the opposite is that through difficulties through messiness through life circumstances through all of this depravity god is working a great plan of redemption to restore all things to make all things new and that includes you and that includes me and you and i no matter how far we've gone no matter how rock bottom we've hit are not too distant from this grace because ultimately we find this grace because of the work of Christ on the cross. And so if you don't know how to do this, that's okay. That's why we're here. If this is your first time hearing these good news, that's okay. I'll be here at the front at the end of the gathering. You can find Lance, you can find any of the elders. You can find a neighborhood group leader. You don't have to journey through this messiness alone. God has given us people. He's given us the word to be able to see the gospel and God's work in our lives. And so I would just encourage you, to take heed of god's calling over your life today that regardless of whatever messiness you have he is breaking through to do a redemptive work in your life let's pray heavenly father we're so grateful when we read about men like judah because uh, ultimately father god we see ourselves in him we see our society in him we see a passivity we see a uh, Uh, a lack of responsibility we see a lack of ownership we see um, assimilation to sinful ways to wicked and evil ways we see active rebellion against you we see that uh, that left to ourselves we just we don't we don't choose you lord we we run the opposite direction we run away from you we run to things that um, ultimately make us happy because that's the narrative we hear in this world do what makes you happy and yet, through really difficult circumstances, through really difficult situations, you are working a redemptive plan, Lord, to bring us to life in you, to bring us to life in Jesus, because there is life nowhere else. Every other road leads to death. The only road to life is Jesus. So, Father God, we're grateful for difficult texts like these that ultimately gives, give, give us beautiful hope to trust in you, to see that you can use our messy stories for your redemptive plan, not because we are good, but because you are good, not because we can, but because you did, and so we can rest in your finished work. Father God, I pray for all of us in this room, wherever we find ourselves, whatever messiness exists in our lives, let the truths of Scripture wash over us, that we are not too far, that we are not too distant, That we are not too messy. That we are not too broken. Because you've taken all that on the cross. And I just pray that today, Lord, we would be transformed by this word to come back and to turn to you. That we would be spiritually awakened, Father God, to live a life that honors you. We're grateful. It's in your name we pray. Amen.